Good morning. We have started the book of Daniel, and the theme is Stand Firm. Before we get into chapter 2, our family had a chance to get away this week for a couple days. We were up in the Bellevue area, and we went to Snoqualmie Falls. Some of you have been there, and you know that you can park your car, and you can walk across the bridge, and you're at the viewpoint. It is the perfect hike across the bridge to the viewpoint. If you want, you can go on a little bit longer hike to what some would consider a better viewpoint, but you have to work for it. We worked for it, because that's what I wanted to do. (laughs) One of the things that was really interesting on the hike down to the lower viewpoint is you have all of these trees, and if you've done the hike, you know that the vegetation is dense, but you have all of these really old, big trees that now form like three, four, five, six feet high stumps that are old that have fallen over that have died for some reason or another. And there's actually a seedling that has taken root in that stump. And now a tree comes out of that stump. And so the roots go down through the stump, but the roots actually are on the exterior of the stump as well. And they'll go down three, four, five, six, seven, eight feet and then down into the ground. And so there's a sign that explains this phenomenon. And it basically says that when the dead tree has fallen over, leaving the stump, what looks like uh, waste or uh, unnecessary stumps that could be removed to create paths, that it actually creates an ideal environment for a new tree to grow. Because that stump holds water really well, even in the dry months, so that a new seedling has a chance to grow. The stump also holds nutrients really well, the new stump is, like I said, it's five, six, seven feet high, and so it acts like a raised bed, and it keeps the nutrients in the water for the little seedling that's growing up there and away from all the vegetation that might be competing for that water or those nutrients. So there's this really strange thing that happens where something dies, it's the end of its life cycle, it looks dead, it is dead, and out of that deadness comes an ideal environment for growth, an ideal environment for a new work, an ideal environment for new life. And so As we get into Daniel chapter 2, what we're going to see is that God's people are kind of at the end of their self-rule. They're at the end of all of these wicked kings, and now they're in captivity. And while it might seem like hope is lost, they're actually now in the perfect environment for growth, the perfect environment for new life, for a new work of God, as they have a keen sense of their own powerlessness and an acute sense for their need for their savior and it creates the ideal environment for a new work of the lord and that's where we jump in daniel in captivity god's man promoted and serving the king and now god is going to use daniel to show his name to the whole world if you have your bibles daniel chapter 2 is where we're at today i want to summarize just the first 15 16 verses it's a long chapter uh, but essentially what happens is Daniel is finishing up his training to serve in the king's court. He's probably 16 or 17 at this point. And the king has a dream. And the king is troubled by this dream. He might be the most powerful man in the world, but he's still troubled by bad dreams. And so he brings in his wise men, his astrologers, those who counsel him. He brings them all into his court. And he says, I've had a dream. I'm shaken to the core. I'm troubled. Tell me the interpretation of my dream. And he must have doubted. He must have had reason to distrust them. Or maybe the dream was so scary 
that he was desperate to find its true meaning because he looks at his astrologers and his wise men and his counselors and he says, I'm not going to tell you what my dream was in order that I might know that you actually are hearing from God, that you are actually telling me the true dream. I want you to tell me my dream and I want you to tell me its interpretation. And so the king goes back and forth with his counselors. They say, whoa, that's difficult. Why don't you just try to give us the dream and then we will tell you its interpretation. And in verse 10, we see the counselors. In Daniel 2.10, the counselors say to the king, there is no man on earth who can do what you've asked, king. And so the king, in typical king form, says, okay, well, I'm going to kill all of you. In 2 Chronicles 20, uh, where's the verse? In 2 Chronicles, oh, 2 Kings 25, uh, we see that Nebuchadnezzar is a wicked and evil man. And in battle, he captures this country, captures a king, brings the king's boys out in front of him, kills the king's boys in front of the king, then gouges out the king's eyes and drags him back to Babylon. And so when King Nebuchadnezzar says he's going to kill all of them, he's not saying we're going to dock you for your pay, uh, that you're going to be put on administrative leave. He's talking actually about killing them. And so they're freaking out. The king sends his executioner out to to round everyone up. The guy gets to Daniel and says, Daniel, I hate to do this, but I need to take you. And explains to Daniel what's happening. And it says that Daniel responds with discretion and prudence. It says that Daniel responds with discretion and prudence and basically says, would it be possible for me to meet with the king? And so Daniel actually goes to the king and says, King, may I have some time to seek the Lord so that I can tell you the interpretation of your dream? And the king says, sure, <laughs> you know, it's your life. Give it a shot. And so we're going to read verses 17, 18, and 19 of Daniel chapter 2 together. And I want you to see Daniel's response in his moment of crisis, right, where he's got to either tell the king his dream or he's going to die. And here's what our man Daniel does. I want you to see the courage of Daniel, but also the nearness of our God. The courage of Daniel, but also the nearness of God, that God is near when we call. Verse 17 says, Then Daniel went to his house, and he made the matter known to Hananiah, to Mishael, to Azariah, and his companions. And he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. It says, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night of the night. You know, we have seen God's nearness at so many points in our text together. We see God's nearness to Daniel when he calls. We see God's nearness to Daniel in Exodus 2 that we read last week where uh, God hears the cry of his people and he hears the cry of the Israelites in captivity and he is near to them. He hears them and he responds with Moses. We see the nearness in Second Kings, uh, Second Chronicles, when God comes to uh, Solomon and they're uh, inaugurating and celebrating uh, the temple and the Lord says to Solomon, uh, punishment is coming. Your people are going to turn. But, but this, the famous line, but if my people who are called by my name will humb- humble themselves and turn to the Lord, he says, I will hear them and I will forgive them. 
and I will heal their land. And so we see the posture of our father from cover to cover is a posture of nearness to those who are repentant, a nearness to those who humble themselves, a nearness to those who put their faith and their trust in him. And that's what Daniel, that's what Daniel does here. And so we see this compare and contrast, right? We see the wicked philosophers, the um, sorcerers, some had demonic power. Uh, and by the way, these are not just like jungle uh, witch doctors. These are smart fellows. Uh, one record of Babylonian astrologers says that they uh, actually, by watching the stars, figured out that a calendar year was 365 days, 6 hours, 15 minutes, and 41 seconds long. So that's 26 minutes, 55 seconds too long um, compared to what is actually. And that was done three, four, five centuries before the birth of Christ. So these are very sharp individuals, and then some of them under demonic power. And But we see that their wisdom, we see that their intellect, we see that even the power of the enemy in their life is rendered useless when it comes to interpreting and even preventing the plans and the ways of the Lord. So they may have had power over men, they may have had power over circumstances, but they were powerless in the face of the purposes of God. I love that Daniel doesn't shoulder the burden here alone. Often, if we're going to stand firm, it's going to require companions. Often, if we're going to stand firm, it's going to require companions. Some of you have seen the great National Geographic videos, and you've seen herds of animals running and playing and drinking, and then you see the lion stalking the herd, and you see that lion watching for a weak animal, and you see an animal deviate from the herd for just a minute, not long, right? And when the animal deviates from the herd, what happens to the animal? What do you see the lion do? The lion gets between the animal and the herd, right? The moment that animal deviates, the moment that animal separates from the herd, the lion gets between the herd and the animal, and we know the end of the story. The animal is dead, and the lion stands over the animal and eats it, and it's this great moment, and that's why they, National Geographic says live forever, um, the problem is, is many of us are like that, an animal that deviates from the herd. We separate ourselves from the body of Christ. We separate ourselves from companions and then wonder why we have a hard time standing firm. We got a chance to swim with the kids in the pool uh, this week a little bit, and our kids are transitioning out of life jackets. And so uh, Zach just hates going underwater. Uh, and when he goes underwater, his face just his eyes get huge and his tiny little fingers summon incredible strength because if I'm near, he will latch on and cut my skin. Uh, his fingers are small, but his strength is great. He's terrified. He panics. In contrast to him, my daughter just sinks. She doesn't scream. She doesn't make any expression. She doesn't flail her arms or reach. She just sinks. And so most of us when it comes to spiritual things, are, are like my daughter. We just sink. We don't reach for help. We think it's weak to need help. We think it's weak to reach. We think it's weak to ask. When God's really designed us to be like Zachary, like my son, to recognize that we're in over our heads and to reach for help. Standing firm often is going to require companions. That's why we do the men's breakfast the last two weeks in this one as well, to bring men together, to gather together, so that we can stand firm together. It's why we do home groups to involve our lives with each other so that we can begin to pray for each other, encourage each other, and stand firm together. 
we see that Daniel and his friends don't know what God's doing. They don't understand their circumstances, but rather than isolate and rather than run away, they run to their father. I love also that they don't spend all of this time deliberating and getting a whiteboard out and planning the best course of action and brainstorming uh, what they're going to do. They just go to the Lord. They just take it to him. He knows they don't. He has power. They don't. We see the faith of Daniel. We see the confidence and the courage uh, of fully entrusting his life, their lives, to the Lord. And then, of course, we see that God gives Daniel understanding. And it's neat because when you, when you go to the Lord for direction, you invite the Lord to do a work. You invite him to get the glory, and you create an opportunity to see him for who he is. Look at the response that we get from Daniel in the next few verses, verses 20 through 23, uh, when God comes through, when God shows his nearness and God shows his power, here's Daniel's response. Verse 20 says, Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven, and Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and season. He removes kings. He sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. The light dwells with him to you O god of my fathers i give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have made known to me what we asked of you for you have made known to us the king's manner you see that god in this incredibly personal attentive way comes to daniel knowing what daniel needs knowing what Daniel needs to live faithfully in this kingdom, knowing what Daniel needs to take a step of faith to trust him for today, God, in Daniel's moment of need, Daniel turns to the Lord, and the Lord comes through for Daniel. And so I just want to pause and say that I think sometimes we have this sense that God wants to remain distant and mysterious because it's fun for him, or that God wants to keep us blindfolded to what he's doing because it's fun for him. Some of you are familiar with uh, the company Google and how they do interviews. They are famously hard on their interviewees. Uh, They are famously mysterious in the types of questions that they answer. I'll read you three that I found, actual questions asked in Google interviews. The first one says, how much should you charge to wash all the windows in Seattle? How much should you charge to wash all the windows in Seattle? Second question says, design an evacuation plan for the city of San Francisco. Design an evacuation plan for the city of San Francisco. Third, if you're shrunk, this is my favorite, if you're shrunk to a size of a nickel, and it's an important note here, and your body mass is also shrunk proportionally, so you still remain with the same density, and you're thrown into a glass blender and you have 60 seconds before the blades start to move, what do you do? Sometimes we think that God is going to ask impossible and pointless things of us just for fun, right? Google is cruel. God is not. Google is cruel. God is not. God gives Daniel exactly what he needs. Google wants to know if you have the answer, right? God wants to know if you're going to turn to him, if you're going to trust him for the answer. Verse 21 is interesting, and we could spend... 
We could spend a long time on verse 21 and what Daniel says about God putting kings in place and pulling kings away and setting times and changing seasons. And so uh, it's interesting because uh, we're always curious uh, when we look out at life and circumstances, whether it's government and kings and queens in our day and age or rulers, powers, world powers here in our own country, here in our own state. And we wonder, what is God's involvement with that? To what degree does he have influence over that? In what ways has he put this person, this man, this woman in this spot? Or uh, in what sense has he not? Acts 2.24 is an interesting verse talking about Jesus' death on the cross. Uh, I'll read it to you because it just shows the intentionality uh, of the Lord and his forethought and his planning uh, and the way that he works things out by his power. 2.23 uh, of the book of Acts says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan, right? Jesus being offered up was by the plan of God. And it says also through the through the definite, definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. And then it says you crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. And so we see in this incredible uh, moment, in this incredible event in history, that it was by the plan of God. That it was something that God destined to happen. And so when we we see that God puts kings in and removes kings, and we read verses like Acts 2. We say, well, gosh, it kind of sounds like just whatever God wants to have happen is going to happen, so what should I do? I should just sit back and wait and uh, not do anything because it's all determined, because it's all something that, that he's going to work out. Um, then we've got these other verses in the Bible that put upon us this great dignity of choice. Uh, in First Corinthians, we read that, the Lord gives us a way out of temptation. But you guys know you have to take that way out. Uh, some of us would say I, there's been plenty of times where I've not even seen it. So we have a hard time seeing it, let alone actually doing it. But the premise is that if he gives us a way out of temptation, we have the ability to choose that way out. That there's a choice, a responsibility we have to choose that way out. In Second Peter, we read that the Lord is slow. The Lord is delaying his return to give more of us the opportunity to choose to respond to his offer with faith, to choose to follow him. And so we, we see again in, in just yet another Mount Rushmore type passage uh, that we have this responsibility, a moral responsibility to respond to the call of God in our lives. And so you kind of have these two different competing viewpoints. One, that the Lord puts kings in, takes kings out, that everything is according to his plan, that nothing happens that is outside of it, that he dictates all of it. And you have this other side that says, well, we have, a, we have decisions to make, right? We have to trust. We have to have faith. We have to have follow. We have to take the way out of temptation. And so maybe as simply as I could, uh, I would just say that we understand the sovereignty of God to mean that nothing happens outside of his power. Nothing happens beyond what he has control over. And somehow, within that sovereignty of God, within his power, he's working out his wills and ways and purposes in and through humanity, but gives us choice uh, to respond as free moral agents. And so with Daniel, we see that Daniel has made a choice not to trust his circumstances, but to trust in the God who is over his circumstances. To not trust in just what he can see, but trust in the God who he knows and who he believes sees everything. And so some of us are, are in this season right now, and we kind of relate more to the tree stump than we do to the beautiful tree that comes out of the tree stump. And 
the call from the book of Daniel, the call in trusting the supremacy of God that is sovereign, that he is sovereign over all things, is to believe that he is capable and perpetually doing good and beautiful and new works in the midst of decaying and rotten old stumps. Daniel makes a choice. We see the courage. We see his hope to trust in God, not his circumstances. Verse 27 and 28 record Daniel's uh, response to the king. So the moment comes, he's been called in to go visit the king. Verse 27 and 28 are Daniel's words. Daniel says, No wise man, no enchanter, no magician, no astrologer can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. Essentially, no one on earth can do what you've asked, king. But he says, but fortunately, verse 18, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. If there was ever a moment for Daniel to try to get ahead in life, this was it, right? He's kind of been dealt pocket aces. He knows the king's dream. He has the answer the king is looking for. He alone has the answer. And you don't see any sense that Daniel's trying to leverage God's work to get ahead, to get a new position, to get a promotion from the king, to get in the king's good graces or the king's favor. Everything about Daniel says pure heart. Everything about Daniel says this whole circumstance, God's work in and through him, is for God's glory, not him. It's not to make Daniel's name great. It's to make God's name great. It's not to show what Daniel can do. Daniel is clear and strategic and deliberate about taking every opportunity to point the king to the one true God. And then we get into the dream. And we're going to get into a number of dreams in the book of Daniel. And so there are plenty of opportunities for us to disagree about some of these dreams and their interpretations of them and possibly even the historical events that have already happened that might relate to these various dreams. And so what I would say is if you hear something that sounds uh, confusion, confusing or different than what you've heard in the past or different than what you've studied, that would be a great conversation for us to have after service, during coffee, over lunch. There's a lot of interesting stuff in the book of Daniel, and sometimes we have the sense that we've got to line up just perfectly on all of it. And so I would say uh, as we get into this chapter and into future chapters, I would love to talk with you more one-on-one about some of this stuff. It's really fascinating. But for the purpose of this morning, we're going to kind of move a little bit quickly through it. So let me summarize uh, what happens here. Uh, Daniel comes before the king. Daniel says, sorry, king, nobody can do what you have asked, but let me tell you your dream. The God of the universe has given me your dream. He says, you saw a statue, a huge statue. Now, later in the book, the king's going to make a statue about 90 feet tall. So that gives us maybe some reference point for the largeness of what Nebuchadnezzar has seen. He sees this huge statue, and the head is made of gold, the chest and the arms of silver, sort of the pelvis, belly area uh, of bronze, legs of iron, and then feet and toes of a mix of iron and clay. And then the king sees this stone, and the text is clear that it's a stone not cut by human hands. It's a supernatural stone that is hurling towards the statue and it strikes the feet of the statue and essentially the statue disintegrates the statue 
is crushed. The statue is destroyed. And it all sort of blows away. And then the stone grows. And it says the stone fills the earth. And so Daniel now comes to the king and says, here's what you saw. Gold, silver, bronze, iron, a little bit of mix of iron and clay, hurling stone. And you can imagine Daniel saying, do I have your attention? And the king, you can just see his jaw dropping as, as Daniel begins to explain to him what he hadn't told anyone. Pick up in verse 37, and here is Daniel's interpretation of that dream. Starting in 37. In the middle of 36, he says, this was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. Verse 37, you, O king, king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, making you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. Verse 39, another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, those are the legs, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all of these things. We'll pause there for just a minute. Daniel looks at King Nebuchadnezzar and says, King Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. You are the top of the statue, the most precious metal. You are the top. But he says, your kingdom isn't actually of your own doing. I know you've had all of these great military conquests, but the Lord has given them into your hand. And guess what, king? It's not going to last. He says, the second king, is gonna, a kingdom is going to rise up inferior to you and it's going to overthrow you. Most believe this is the Medes and the Persians. And in Jeremiah 51, 11, Jeremiah prophesies about the Lord bringing the Medes and the Persians to overthrow Babylon as punishment for Nebuchadnezzar and what he did in the temple in Jerusalem. And so this has already come to pass. And here, Daniel is prophesying about it as a result of the dream that the Lord has given this king. So you have the Medes and the Persians that follow Babylon as world rulers. And then Daniel talks about the bronze portion of the statue. And most would agree that this is Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire. I think I have how long they ruled. They ruled, the Greeks ruled until about 146 BC. They ruled for about 185 years. And some of you know that it was very wicked, uh, just an insatiable thirst for power and for conquest and for blood. And then when Alexander dies, it's split up in four ways, and they really never can get along after that. And some of those really famous Greek cities, Sparta and Thebes, uh, they war against each other. And eventually, because they can't align and get on the same page, they're not able to stand against Rome, the iron legs. And in 146 BC, around there, uh, Rome uh, begins to conquer and Rome begins to take over and so Rome then is going to rule for about 500 years before Rome itself sort of collapses under the weight of its own corruption it becomes so large that it's virtually ungovernable and the east and the west split and there's actually a Roman ruler in the east that remains until like uh, I think it's 500 AD and the ruler in the west uh, which would be Milan um, continues to rule even into the 1400s. 
And so we see this really remarkable thing. We're here, five, six hundred years before the birth of Christ. The Lord gives this wicked king a dream, puts God's man in position to interpret the dream and record for us one of the most incredible passages in all the Bibles that reveals the plans and purposes of God over and above these wicked kings and wicked rulers. We see that these men may have had great power on earth, but they were powerless against a holy God. Then comes the toes. Uh, This is the part of the vision that we don't believe has been fulfilled yet. Uh, Let me read verses 41 through 42, which sort of describe the feet of iron and clay. Iron very strong, clay very weak. Starting in verse 41, And as you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. Daniel 7 and Revelation 17 both mention uh, ten horns, ten rulers, and here with the statue we have ten toes. And so a number of scholars have connected the dots and say this kingdom described as really a coalition of sorts of different kingdoms come together, partly united under one, partly divided, some strong as iron, some weak as clay, uh, that these are actually the ten kings talked about in Romans or Revelation 17. I'll read you Revelation 17, 17. It says, and the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. And, and so we see ten uh, in Daniel 7 and in Revelation 17 and some other places And the idea here is is it seems to make sense that there are ten kings, ten kingdoms that are going to come together, some strong, some weak. They will be united and it will immediately uh, precede the Antichrist and precede Jesus' second coming. Jesus' second coming being that stone that is hurling towards this great statue. And there's some discussion about whether or not the stone represents Jesus' first coming Uh, when he came as a baby, or whether this is going to be Jesus' second coming when he comes to rule and to reign. And and I would just say that um, it seems to make a lot more sense that the stone is talking about Jesus' second coming. We really don't see a tremendous military battle uh, surrounding Jesus' first coming. Uh, The stone in the dream gets bigger and it fills the whole earth. And so I would say as we look out at culture and we look out at what God's work and will and Christianity is doing globally. We certainly see great evidence of expanding and growing, uh, but we don't see uh, this ruling over the earth like described in this passage. It seems to fit a lot more with what's going to happen when Jesus comes a second time and this stone hurling at these ten kingdoms that have been given power for a time. And then what's interesting is as we think about Jesus' return in this kingdom of God here on earth, uh, we see that it's of supernatural origins, right? We see this stone not cut by human hands is how it's described in Daniel 2. 
And it's a kingdom of supernatural origins. But it also says that the stone is coming uh, suddenly. It's coming swiftly. Uh, It's quick. This isn't a long, drawn-out battle. (laughs) This is not two evenly matched opponents, right? This is Jesus coming and saying, thank you, we're done, you're dismissed, and setting up his rule. Uh, It's not just sudden and swift, but it's also severe because all of these powerful kings, all of these powerful kingdoms, it says they are no more. So this isn't, you know, Rocky Balboa where they get knocked down and they're laying on the mat and just before the announcer hits 10, they get back up and fight again. Uh, This is quite a (laughs) beatdown. They don't get back up. Uh, It's over. And then it says that uh, his kingdom is successful. His kingdom spreads throughout all of the earth. And so for God's people in captivity, there's this incredible moment where they're reminded that even though we're in captivity now, we win. Even though right now our circumstances seem to be falling apart at the seams and everywhere we look we see oppression and wickedness and we see evil thriving, God's people are reminded that no matter who is on the throne, no matter who is in the White House, no matter who is the governor, no matter who is whatever position authority you want to go to, that still we have uh, our Father, we still have God, we still have the Lord on the throne. And God's people are reminded that five or six hundred years before the birth of Christ, and God's people are reminded that today, 2,000 years after the birth of Christ, that no matter who has power, no matter who sits in the presidents, in the kingdoms of the earth, that the Lord is on the throne. And so it changes our posture as we look at world events. It changes our posture as we look at what's happening in culture uh, when we understand that the Lord has power over all this, right? There's no need for God's people to hang their heads in despair. There's no need uh, for God's people to be discouraged as if evil is winning and God is defeated. We know how the end of the story goes. We know what is written at the end of Revelation. We see here a reminder to God's people to trust in God, not in the circumstances that they see, that their God is over their circumstances. One of the neat things about getting to pastor here is to share with you all and some of the really neat God stories in your life. There's been a bunch of them. It's always neat to hear because inevitably the story goes like this. Something happened. You weren't excited about it. And God did something really cool to open your eyes to this discovery, to this awareness that his power was bigger than your circumstances. And then we get to celebrate that together. That's fun. Right? That's, those are courtside seats to God's work. That's fun. One of the hard parts is walking with us, with you as a family, through some of the difficult stuff, right? Sometimes it does seem like the enemy is winning. Sometimes it does seem like he's having his way with us. I think about just life. Sometimes as a father, it feels like the enemy is having his way with me as a father when I get really frustrated with the kids. As a husband, sometimes it feels like the enemy is having his way with me uh, as a husband when I just want to do what I want to do when I get home and I don't go home uh, with a heart of love and softness to serve my wife and to serve my kids. As a follower of Christ, sometimes it seems like the enemy has his way with me when I see people as interruptions to my day and to my agenda, when I find myself singularly focused uh, on what I think 
I need to set out to do today and altogether ignoring uh, what God's doing and who God is bringing into my life. Sometimes it feels like the enemy has his way with us. We see that God's people could have hope because of his promise. We understand that today we can have hope because of the completed work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Like the work is done. The inheritance is secured. It is finished. It's interesting that Jesus makes this all possible through the cross. This cross as an instrument of pain and suffering and judgment and torment. And that is the instrument now of hope. That is the symbol now of hope for God's people. And so as you, as you look at your circumstances, as you look at your situations, and maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's something happening at, at work, maybe it's something with your health, with your finance, something that seems insurmountable, something that maybe even seems wicked, we understand that historically God has taken those awful things and turned them into symbols of hope, turned them into symbols of his power. And so what we want to do is we want to go back to the text, see how he's done it in the past, and have our confidence our courage, our hope renewed as we consider that Daniel is talking five to six hundred years before these events would happen. Some of the events that would be fully realized uh, not even for a thousand years later. This chapter ends in verses 46 through 48. The king, this wicked king, who Daniel has just told he's not much of a king and is going to lose his kingdom, promoting Daniel, promoting Daniel's friends, and recognizing, in verse 47, it says, Truly, your God is God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Daniel, in the midst of captivity, discovers he's right where God wants him. Daniel, in the midst of captivity, discovers he's right where he needs to be to advance the purposes and the causes of the Lord. Daniel, in the midst of captivity, when his understanding seems at a low, is discovering that in the Lord he has great understanding. When his power seems weak, when he seems powerless, he's understanding that in the Lord he is powerful. As you think about your captivity, as you think about where the winds of life are blowing, where you're most pressed to stand firm, I would say that our hope is not in our willpower, our hope is not in our strength, our hope is in our God. That courage is not about fortitude, courage is not about saying, I can do anything I set my mind to, that courage and that hope is really about believing that we can do anything God calls us to. I don't know what God has called you to this morning. I don't know what he's brought in your way. But I have to believe that Daniel 2 is for all of us today. And that the call in our life is to stand firm. That sometimes it's going to take companions. It's going to take courage. It's going to take conviction. But we have the cross. We have the symbol of hope. We understand that God does new life. He births new things out of old decaying stumps. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for uh, your word to us. Thank you for the sense we have that you're in control and how meaningful that is when we are most aware that we are not in control. 
Thank you for even bringing us to this point where we discover that, Lord, because it's there that we discover your power. It's there that we discover your goodness. It's there that we discover your nearness to us. Thank you for loving us enough to show us those things, loving us enough, Lord, to not live oblivious of what you've invited us into. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us low when we need to be brought low so that you can do a new work. Lord, fill us with courage and fill us with hope because sometimes we don't see a way out. Sometimes we don't see what you're doing. I pray that we would be like Daniel and his companions, that when we don't understand our circumstances, we would run to you, not from you, Lord, and that we would do it just like Daniel did together, uh, not in isolation, not too proud, Lord, to admit that we need help, not too proud to ask, not too proud to reach out. Lord, as we think about following, uh, we understand that following means we will perpetually be following you, perpetually, Lord, at the end of our own strength. Lord, give us a great sense of confidence, Lord, that we are perfectly positioned for your new work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.